you know, the reason they, they like reading my stuff is that I've always got real life examples to prove what I'm saying. There's a lot of good people that listen to this podcast. You know, other than God and my family, deer hunting would be next in line on my list of priorities. From the bottom of our hearts, it's it's just fantastic and awesome to uh, to have the support that you guys are getting. People ask me about expandable broadheads and love swings. <laughs> Chasing Giants with Don Higgins and Terry Peer. Brought to you by Osseo Camo, nature's most lethal camouflage. Follow along as Don and Terry discuss the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Welcome, everyone, to the Chasing Giants podcast, episode 169 with Don Higgins. I'm Terry Peer. We're, as usual, brought to you by Osseo Gear. And, Don, uh, tomorrow is Mother's Day. And before we start this off, do you have any words of wisdom or words of uh, thanks to give to your mother, your wife, and your daughters who are now moms or moms-to-be? Well, I just think that the older I get, the more I appreciate them. Um, I think probably like a lot of other guys, when... When I was younger, you know, I, I didn't appreciate my mother like I do today. I don't didn't appreciate my wife like I do today or my daughters. But uh, the older I get, I think we've talked about this on some recent podcasts, you know, when the, it seems like the older I get, the more sentimental I get. And uh, the more I recognize what's really important in life, and it's the people around us, uh, particularly family and friends. And uh, I, I'm extremely blessed to have a fantastic mother that supported me um, in my entire life. I'm blessed that she's still around. You know, I'll be 60 years old this summer, and I think I've said it before on the podcast that most of the friends I grew up with who are my age have lost at least one of their parents, and a lot of them have lost both of their parents. And Robin and I are extremely blessed that uh, both of our parents are not only are they all still alive, but they're still married to each other. You know, it's pretty rare to find a couple that are, you know, in their late fifties, of course, I'm a few years older than Robin, but, uh, but to find a couple our age, whose parents are, are still married and are still alive together. And that's a fantastic blessing. And then, you know, as I've watched my wife be a mother to our girls, um, and I recognize that the reason our girls turned out so well was not so much me, but it was the example that Robin set. And, uh, I'm very grateful for that. And then, uh, just to see my own daughters, one's got uh, my oldest daughter, Andrea has two sons to watch her be a fantastic mother to those boys and put those boys above everything else in her life. Um, just you know, it kind of melts my heart, if you will, to, to see that. And then my youngest daughter is expecting her first child in September. And, you know, to see the excitement in her, as she, she talks about that. I'm just a very blessed man. And it's because of the mothers and, and, and ladies in my life. I think um, a lot of what we attribute and are thankful for, there's a lot of similarities between your family and mine. It comes from the strength of a solid home. And and even back to grandparents, not just parents, but grandparents. But I was thinking today I was on the tractor a lot and I was thinking about Mother's Day. And, you know, my dad, my dad is a minister and he started preaching at the age of 16. And everybody always talked about the sacrifice that my dad had 
you know, for the church and his ministry. But I want to tell you something, people like my mom or ministers' wives out there, it's just as much their ministry as it is my father's and how much work they put into church and youth groups and nurseries and meals and so many different other things. So um, I'm I'm really blessed with my mother. Um, my wife's mother is still, uh, she lives really close to us, still really close to her. But uh, both both Casey and I are very also very blessed with parents, and I I married a good one when it comes to that too. So um, my wife is just an absolute rock star, and the pretty much the backbone and foundation of our family. I can tell you that. So special day tomorrow. We hope that all of you uh, um, reach out to your mother, spend some time with her, or at least talk to her, and tell her you love her. Um, it, there's a lot of people that don't weren't weren't blessed to have godly mothers in their lives and um it makes a huge huge difference and and don and i you know we we've said it before we're just so blessed with the family and people around us let's talk a little bit about some projects that you had going on this this last week i think i saw an instagram and facebook picture of Wes delks and the ninja Corey um riding on the back of the tree planter planting miscanthus this week what all did you get done Oh, we got a lot done. Uh, yeah, Wes and Corey showed up as well as Steve Shields uh, one day, and uh, we planted Miscanthus. Um, Corey and Wes did some uh, trimming of some trees for me that I needed uh, done on the farm. Uh, Steve and I were, were doing some video work. In fact, while we was uh, planting that miscanthus steve was was filming that whole process for a video that uh, we're going to produce for the whitetail master academy um, he was flying the drone over us too as we was doing that um well i got my soybean plots planted right before today's rain um well i had something really interesting happen today that i'll bet you there's not a single listener out there that's done on their property what i did this morning and it, you know, most people are doing predator control on their, their properties. Well, I had a local nuisance trapper um, contact me and wanted to know if I'd be interested in turning some foxes loose on my property. He had trapped some foxes at a local fairgrounds that had they'd made a den under this uh, building and he was called in to remove them. And he, you know, he caught them in some box traps and he was looking for a place to turn them loose. And I, I just love foxes. You know, we I haven't seen one on this farm in many, many years, probably pushing 20 years. And so he brought me three foxes today and we turned them loose here. Um, the, the bad thing is I was, I was making a video of all this and, uh, you know, I, I did the introduction at the beginning of the video and uh showed the guy's truck and he's standing there at the back of the truck with these three foxes in these cages and i turned my phone around to watch him turn these foxes loose and when i turned it around i i hit the record button and i shut it off and so i'm sitting there holding my camera through this whole process three foxes being turned loose and my camera's not recording at all i lost all that well you don't get a second chance to record that but uh so I've got three new red foxes running loose on my place and uh, hopefully they survive. I will not be shooting them or trapping them or anything like that. I, I think predators are a necessary part of the, the ecosystem. 
and uh yeah i'm gonna hammer the coons and coyotes and and possums and things like that hard but uh you know the bobcats are kind of new and I, i'm not putting any pressure on bobcats and i'm not putting any pressure on these foxes and whether they'll make it or not i don't know but th that was kind of a neat thing that i did this week as well on the farm where'd you turn them loose at there by the house we went yeah, we went down uh, by the bridge behind the house and uh, oh, okay. turned them so loose along the creek back there. Uh, okay, I was hoping it'd be up closer to the house where you'd be on security camera footage and at least get get that, but that's probably going to be out of frame. Yep. Well, that stinks, so, but yeah, that's a cool story. I don't know of anybody else that would turn a fox loose on, on your property, <laughs> but... Yeah, most people are doing predator control, and here I am turning the things loose, but... Uh, a fox is no threat to a deer. I don't even, these things were so small. I mean, they weren't, it, he got the adult female that had the litter and an adult male. And then he got one young one. And, uh, I don't think these things would, would stand a chance against a fawn because that fawn starts screaming and the doe would be right there and stomp the crap out of these, these foxes. And, uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I honestly don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll help with your rabbit problem. Oh yeah. And maybe the pheasants too. Yeah. So that's what I'm yeah, hoping. It's, it's all just a, a, I mean, you've, you're basically creating an ecosystem when we're doing this kind of habitat work for our property, it, it benefits deer and the layout of it is for, you know, what we want to do to try to target mature bucks. But what it does for the entire wildlife you know that that's kind of cool when you look at it i mean the amount of turkeys the amount of rabbits you know we got bobcats in my place now you know foxes coyotes um yeah it's just it, it's just cool i mean the time and effort that you put into it the the payback you get for all wildlife i really enjoy it yeah you know i've seen more well first of all i've seen we've already talked about this i've seen turkey i've got turkeys for the first time ever now and i've seen more quail this spring than i've seen in probably 20 really? years wow i see quail almost on a daily basis now and again i'm not shooting these quail um I'm not shooting the pheasants although i got plenty of them it wouldn't hurt to shoot half of them probably but it's just right. pretty neat to see these these species show up that were not there and how do they find a place like this i mean you create the habitat and you don't have to stock wildlife. They are going to show up if you've got the best habitat around for them. Yep. Well, um, so you got your, so your corn and beans are both planted or just your beans. You got your corn planted right before last week, right? Right. So my corn and beans are done. The only plot that I have left is a uh, plot of uh, Milo or grain sorghum that uh, I'm going to try to get in in the next week or so. And, after that, I'm done. I'm gonna take it easy this summer. Yeah, we um we had a little bit of rain through the week, put me behind. We woke up this morning and I got lime fertilizer and got the ground ready, but we had another shower come through in the afternoon, so I did not get corner beans planted. But our good friend and your consulting client, he's been to the uh, master class, Todd Covey brought over his tree planter and we were able to plant all of my miscanthus today so even though the ground was just a little bit too wet to run the corn planter over you know those uh tree seedling planters don't really care it just uh kind of opens up a little trench and then closes it back over but 
We got almost 600 yards of miscanthus uh, planted. About half of it is entrance and exit, and half of it is only there to funnel deer uh, to specific places that I want on the farm. So a little bit of two different applications I'm using the product for, but glad to get that done. Uh, I brought that miscanthus home. I wanted to tell you this. I brought that miscanthus home the weekend of the master class. Mm-hmm. So that was what, the second or third weekend of March? And I think yep. I mentioned it on the podcast that I put it all in boxes and stored it in our church's walk-in cooler. I took it out today. The rhizomes were perfect condition, still just moist, um, you know, um, not dried out. They looked absolutely phenomenal. So um, that's why we we keep telling people not only try to pick the time frame that you want, uh, when you order your miscanthus, but be able to figure out a way to keep them in a cooler. It'll make all the difference in the world if you don't have the right weather like I haven't for the last month and a half. Yeah, we should probably talk about that a little bit, Terry, because there's been a couple of people. In fact, right before we got on tonight uh, to record this podcast, I was uh, on social media addressing a message I had there from someone about a planning they did in Kentucky, of all places back in march and and they were seeing um very spotty growth from that or sprouting from that and you know folks there is uh, a lot of things beyond our control we do everything we possibly can to get that miscanthus to our customers in in the best condition possible so you know we we rented two refrigerated semi trailers this spring when that miscanthus arrives in these bulk bags it is refrigerated immediately and and that keeps it dormant what it does it keeps it from starting to sprout and grow we when we put it into the 100 count bags those bags immediately go right back into the refrigerated storage we don't even we only ship on mondays miscanthus only goes out the door on mondays because we don't want those bags sitting in a terminal over the weekend for extra days. We want to get it to the customer as quick as we can. Here's the thing. Once it gets out of our hands, um, you know, we have no control over it. So I know a lot of the, the issues that people have has got to be due with to improper storage of those rhizomes. You got to, first of all, you got to keep moisture with them. So when we back package them in those, you know, 100 count bags, there is a moisture retention gel that we throw in that that bag to keep moisture. A lot of in people there. mistake it for ice. Yeah, it, it looks like a clear. It almost looks like ice. It looks like a clear jelly type stuff. Um, but that's to keep moisture in there, and you got to keep it dormant. And uh, I know there's people selling it on Facebook Marketplace and. You know, we, we get people that buy big totes and break them down and that's, that's fine. As long as they've been stored and cared for properly uh, up until the point that the, the end user gets them. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, we just don't have any control that people could have those things for two months sitting out and drying out and, and, and then sell them when they find a buyer and the results uh, show that and it's just totally out of our control. So proper storage of those rhizomes until, until planting time is huge. And like you just said, Terry, with proper storage, you can keep those things for months, but uh, with poor storage, 
a few days is going to destroy them and kill them. Yeah. And the other thing you need to watch is if they do come out of dormancy in the bags and they start getting green sprouts on them, they become very delicate. So you need to be really careful when you're, you know, planting them and, and putting them in the ground. Speaking of common questions that we've been getting about Miscanthus before we got on, I answered six emails uh, on the real world account of people who had planted Miscanthus all four weeks ago and they started seeing spotty and they keep calling it germination. And I think a couple of weeks ago we clarified that it's not germination, it's coming out of dormancy. But they're freaking out because they're four weeks in and they're not seeing everything popping. So let's talk a little bit about patience and what people need to understand as as the rhizomes are coming out. Um, I'm actually surprised in a couple cases that people saw them in four weeks, but go into this a little bit and kind of ask people to have a little bit of patience, but more importantly, explain what's going on uh, with these rhizomes. Yeah, so those rhizomes are dug when the plant is dormant. So, you know, the plant's dormant in the winter. Before that plant breaks dormancy in the spring and starts to grow, that's when they're being dug and harvested in the fields where it's grown. What brings those plants out of dormancy is heat. So when it, when the temperature warms up, you know, it's telling that plant, hey, spring's here, it's time to start growing. But the thing of it is, you know, a lot of food plotters are used to think, you know, growing a crop, whatever that crop might be. It, it could be soybeans, corn, whatever. And they, they go out and they plant that seed and boom, all that seed they planted germinates at the same time. So you can look right down the row of soybeans, for example, and every one of them soybeans is one inch tall. Every every seed you planted. Well, these rhizomes are not like that because as they're coming out of dormancy, they will come out at different rates. And you may think that, man, I only got 10% or, or yeah, survival, whatever you want to call it. To only 10% of my rhizomes grew. Well, you know, in another 30 days, you might be at 50%. And then another 30 days, I mean, those things, the first thing that they're doing is their, their roots are going to start growing. Uh, the soil temperature's warmed up. That rhizome is figured out that it's spring. So the roots start growing. And as those roots start growing, then the little sprout starts working its way up. But uh, it's the roots that are really growing first. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not all going to be on the same schedule. Some of them are going to pop out of dormancy way sooner than the others. you got to be very patient. And, you know, it, it's going to be early to midsummer before you see really what kind of success you had. And I'll throw something out there, an exp a firsthand experience of mine from a few years ago. Um, I got, this was even before real world was selling miscanthus is one of my earlier plantings. I got a bunch of miscanthus one spring and the, the place I got it, I didn't get it from them until late. You know, it was probably pushing the first of June and I got these, um, rhizomes and I was planting them along an established or within an established switchgrass field. So that spring. I burned off this switchgrass field and along the edge where I was going to put this miscanthus. I sprayed, you know, like a little, little five foot strip um, right yeah. where I wanted this. And uh, and then immediately I went in and, and put those rhizomes in. But I'm, again, it was like June and, and it was conditions were very, very dry that year. Very dry. And at the end of the summer, I'm looking out there and 
you know, by this time, a lot of that switchgrass I thought I'd killed um, had turned brown, but then it starts coming back. You know, I, I didn't kill it. I just set it back and it, it comes back. And I, I'm telling you, at the end of that year, I'm talking in the fall, like October or November, I looked at that planting and I thought I've got 5% survival at, at most. There, there's no more than 5% of them rhizomes survive. Well, over time, they just kept coming on and coming on. And today, there's an absolute wall. In fact, we see it on the uh, master class when we go take the farm tour and we walk over towards the smoky blind. And between the, the house and the smoky blind, there's that miscanthus that's, that's right there along the edge of the switchgrass. Yep. That is that miscanthus that I swore had less than 5% survival. And today, it's an absolute wall. And I never did anything after that. I gave up. I thought this stuff has had terrible uh, success. I'm just going to let it go and, you know, give up on the whole project. Well, it, it actually worked. But to be honest, it was probably, I bet it was three years before I really had what I considered a row. It was real sporadic. And, you know, those roots were, were fighting with that switchgrass a little bit, competing um, to grow. But today I got a wall. So, folks, don't give up on your planning is what I want to stress. Give it a chance. And when I say give it a chance, I don't mean give it 60 days. I, I mean give it a couple of years and see what you got. Yeah, it's um it's a big investment. So I don't wanna I don't wanna diminish people's concern because they spend, you know, a good bit of money for this screen product. It's a lot of work to put it in. I mean, trust me, I'm more out. We were out there most most of the day today doing it. But, um, you know, you just have to understand, number one, it's not germination. The, the tree or the, excuse me, the rhizome root is already living. It's just dormant. So when you put that in the ground, they come out of dormancy at different times. The other thing that I, I want to stress is when you look at different rhizomes that you plant, some of them already have little sprouts and nubs. Some of them don't. So some of them basically have a head start where those fibers are already starting to grow out. You might have some that have fibers and the way you drop it in the trench, it's at the wrong orientation versus that's all going to dictate when you start seeing this stuff. So please don't panic. Um, I'll continue to answer your emails when you, but when you email them in, but you got to be patient. Um, this is, we say it all over the website. This is a three-year process to get your screen where it needs to be at full maturity that you'll be able to enjoy and utilize for years to come. But it just takes a little bit more time than four weeks before you start freaking out. No doubt about it. It's one of, basically all these tall grasses, switchgrass, miscanthus, bedding in a bag, they're going to require more patience than anything you've planted. So don't, don't freak out when 30 days after you stick it in the ground, you aren't seeing much or might not seeing anything. Have some patience. All right. Well, with that, let's take a quick break and listen to our friends from Osseo. Remember to also check out Joe Miles' podcast called Mission Whitetail. You can find it on all the major podcast platforms. Osseo Gear introduces a premium line of bow hunting gear that is unmatched. Pairing nature's finest camouflage with the best technological innovations, Osseo Gear brings whitetail bow hunters the gear they need to be the best at their craft. The unique camouflage mimics the intricate feather pattern of North America's greatest predatorial creatures. Designed for invisibility, 
Built for comfort and engineered for function. Visit osseogear.com. That's A-S-I-O-Gear.com to start shopping. Osseo Gear. Prepare to be invisible. All right, Don. Well, we're gonna we're gonna bring up an interesting topic um, about seeds and uh, different trials and different growers. But um, I want to tease up a little bit. We got a good biofarm segment this week. Don Bailey was on is on the show to talk about a new listing in Marion County, Illinois. You'll want to stick around for that. And then also Kevin Miller is is on the show tonight to talk a little bit about the Haiti mission that we donated a land consulting project to. So you want to stick around for that too. But Don, dive into this little bit of a social media post you made today about different corn packets. I think you had little packets of a hundred kernels of corn and said you were going to talk about this on the podcast tonight. What do you got for us? Well, you know, Dwayne and Mike at Kitchen Seed, um, they've been in the seed business for decades, and th- they've made a lot of connections over the years, and, and they've been fantastic partners in real world and have really helped us not only get established and become, you know, one of the major players in the whole food plot seed industry, but They've also helped us take the company in a different direction um, than just about any, well, basically any other food plot seed company that I know of. And, you know, one of the things that, that they did this spring is uh, there, there's some spe- very specific traits we're looking for in our deer corn and high protein, um, high fat, um, you know, uh, different growing days, um, different maturities for different regions of the country. We're looking at expanding our, our corn offerings. So uh, the current Nutri-Crave, you know, has a limit on how far north we can take it. So we're looking for a shorter day corn. But anyway, one of the plant breeders, the corn breeders that they have worked with for a number of years, uh, sent us some samples uh, to test this year about 20 different packets and these packets were in little envelopes and I was expecting when these guys, you know, I told them, let's get some of this stuff and let's start testing it. I'll offer, you know, part of my property to, to do the testing. You know, I was expecting bags of, uh, you know, quarter acre bags anyway, you know, several pounds of each variety. (laughs) Well, I couldn't believe it when, when these guys presented me with 20, um, 20 different varieties of corn and it's in a box literally half the size of a shoe box and I open it up and there's these little envelopes that I, a lot of people have probably seen it on my social media posts but these little envelopes no bigger than what your cell phone is and each envelope had exactly 100 kernels and uh, I know there's 100 kernels because I planted these things by hand and I was dropping them in the row by hand and I was counting as I was dropping them. And I'm telling you what, they value this seed so much. They counted out exactly 100 kernels for us. These and, little packets look almost and, uh, like the seed. These, these little packets look almost like the seeds that you see at rural King to plant your garden, like, you know, a, a pack of cucumbers yeah. or something like that. That's exactly how big they are. And uh, so, you know, one thing I've learned about this whole process of developing new corn hybrids that uh, I, I didn't realize was it, it's a it starts out very small. These plant breeders don't start out breeding 40 acres of corn. 
to test. They're starting out with just a few plants. And, and then if they see something they like, they take that seed and then they'll allow folks like us to test it, you know, and get feedback. And, and when they find, here's a really interesting thing, when they find a, a variety that they want to bring into production, like if, if we really like one of these 20 varieties that we've seen here, next year they will send us a, a bigger sample that we can test. Not near enough for us to take it to market or share with our customers or anything like that, but they will send us a bigger quantity to test. But once we find one that we like, you know, we're, they're still a long way from having bags of this stuff. So what they will do is they will send the varieties that, that they want to expand down to Puerto Rico. And in Puerto Rico, you know, it's basically summer all year round. And these corn um, hybrids are typically in the 100-day range, give or take, you know, 10 or 15 days one way or the other. And so they can send it down there and they can get three crops in one year. And, and so what they'll do, they'll send down, say, you know, a quarter acre bag and in, to Puerto Rico and they'll grow a quarter acre of this corn. And as soon as they harvest it, they shell it and they plant every kernel. And then they do the same thing again. And each time they're expanding how many acres they got. And then when they get it, you know, a big enough quantity, they send it back to the United States where they will put it in production fields um, for corn. So this is all a long-winded way of saying that, you know, I hear people out there trying to, a lot of times it's the competition or it's somebody that's just not informed whatsoever saying things that, you know, real world is seed is, is just basically ag seed in a fancy bag or something like that. They don't understand the process that we go through to develop these products. And the other thing is, I hear people say, I've, I've had to address it a couple times this spring about our Nutri-Crave corn. Somebody else will, will be selling a corn and they'll say, this is the same thing as, as real world's Nutri-Crave, only it's cheaper. Well, no, it's not the same thing because we go to great lengths to secure exclusivity to our products now because there's just a, there's too many people, and then in particular, a couple of people in the industry that have copied or tried to copy real world in the past. So, you know, one a good example is our Miscanthus. Nobody out there is selling the same variety of Miscanthus that we are. You and I hopped on an airplane with West Delks, and we did our research, and we found the very best variety that we felt for, for the application we want to use it for. Nobody else, they may, there may be other people selling giant miscanthus, absolutely, but they are not selling the same variety. And there may be other people selling deer corn and they may be calling it whatever, but I promise you it is not the same as Nutri-Crave. We protect ourselves after we go to all this work. And it's really crazy to think, and you know what? I got one of those little envelopes right here on my desk, Terry. I, I want to want to hold this up for everybody to see. These are the envelopes, the size of the envelopes. And uh, I'm going to hold my thumb over the label because I don't want anybody to see what the, what the variety number is or anything. But these are the, the size of the envelopes that this seed is coming in when we start for a project. And it's crazy to think that one of those little envelopes, that variety of seed may three or four years from now be in a real world bag and uh, it'll be totally different than anything that's offered by any 
anybody else. Well, I think the thing people have to understand why we do this is because we're looking for very specific traits or performance or tissue analysis. And as it relates to what we believe deer crave, get attracted to or benefit, um, you know, the herd overall herd health. But the reason we try to get in on the ground level like this is so we can protect the investment because when we're at the very beginning stages of it, we can lock down the the rights to it. And same way we did with our corn and our miscanthus and our soybeans. And, and then, you know, we're not going to come on here and bash different companies or different people, but people just have to understand the majority of the industry is just bagging whatever they have access to. You're not even getting the same um, variety year after year inside of the same bag. So it's, it's definitely a different spin and trust me, it would have been a whole lot easier for us to just write a check and pay a celebrity to just put them on the bag and, and, <laughs> and let them promote it. It'd be a whole lot easier and a whole lot cheaper in the long run. Uh, but it's just not our style, and we've we've kind of stayed true to what built this business, and I don't see us deviating anytime when the two of us and and people like Dwayne and Janice have a say in it. Right. You know, it's really easy to start a seed company. Anybody can get on the internet, and, and they can search for seed suppliers and find them. But to set yourself and your and to set your products apart from the competition requires a whole lot of extra effort than just doing a search on the internet and getting some seeds, even going to the point of taking those seeds and creating little test plots. Um, I see a, a good example. I, I know that there, there's a new soybean out there and, and I know that the person behind this new soybean last year was promoting a different soybean. And, and I know the history of this person. There's absolutely no way there was any research whatsoever that went into that soybean. It was just throw a bunch of varieties in a bag, call it a deer soybean, a deer variety of soybeans without any research whatsoever behind it. And that's not the, the approach we've ever taken. And I think these little packets of 100 kernel corn is a perfect example of the way we start to develop a product. Well, I learned something tonight, though. I did not know they sent all those to Puerto Rico. So we all, all of us sitting here listening to that analogy are just hoping that our 401ks start exponentially growing like the corn seed packets that go to Puerto Rico before they come back and go into uh, mass production. <laughs> so, yeah, hopefully so. Well, we are extremely blessed at Real World to be partnered with some folks at, at kitchen seed that know the industry way better than we ever will and and they've got the connections i mean it would be impossible for a new seed company to to start now and hit the ground running like we have because of the partners that we've had from the beginning and yeah. without those those connections in the seed industry i mean the breeders i'm not talking about suppliers I'm talking about the breeders that actually develop new varieties of these seeds that we've got access to that uh, I, I'm not sure anybody else in the industry has got the same access that we do. Yep. All right. Well, how about we move on to our first listener submitted question of the week? Yeah, if we're going to get them answered, we better get to moving on those. Um, so the first one comes from Chris Warenberg from La Crosse, Wisconsin. 
Uh, he says, hopefully this applies to many of your listeners. For wetland areas, which is better for whitetails and why? Red osier dogwoods or switchgrass? They're most likely many of your listeners who have wetlands as part of their property. Some of the wetland may have at certain times of the year high spots that could be isolated bedding areas. Currently as the snow and cold flyers all over the native grass lays down and offers no value to deer, pheasants, or other wildlife. Furthermore, in my peat moss swamp that does not have some white pine trees, it is a concern if one considers burning switchgrass. Alternately, mowing switchgrass on wet ground is difficult as one would get the tractor stuck, pictures not enclosed. Red osier dogwood does not block the wind, but most of the year it provides cover and food. Just want to know your thoughts. Many of us deer landowners have wet ground, limited area for food plots that are consumed too early by the deer, nothing left for the winter. Some of our remaining high ground is in Wisconsin forest management laws, so we can act on timber stand improvement until trees get a bit older for harvest by a logger. I enjoy the podcast and listen to you as you have a great resume. You actually kill big deer. Unlike many of the other, <laughs> unlike other of the many other hunting consultants pushing to make the sale of crap. Well, Chris, <laughs> I'm not going to peddle crap. I'm, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't try to try not to talk crap either, but, uh, Apparently, someone recently has been pushing red osier dogwoods, and they definitely have their place. Deer love to browse on those red osier dogwoods, but here's the thing. I know because of whoever made this uh, declaration that red osier dogwoods are great deer bedding habitat or whatever the case may be, because of that, there's a lot of people planting red osier dogwoods this spring. And I've seen an uprise on social media of, of posts of people planting red osier dogwoods. And I think there's going to be a lot of people disappointed because those red osier dogwoods um, require a, a very specific um, environment to, to do well in. Um, that doesn't mean they won't grow anywhere, but they're going to grow so slowly or, or basically just survive and not thrive. And the deer love them so much that, that those plantings, the deer are just gonna come by and wipe them out before they ever have a chance to, to really get going good. Um, I, I do think that in a swampy area like you've described, red osier dogwoods are probably, depending on the, the exact specific situation, probably most of the time are a better, a better option. Um, if it's so wet that you're in, in basically peat, um, I don't think that switchgrass is going to do well at all. So, uh, the, the red osier dogwood would be a, a much better option there. Um, you mentioned peat because of fire. I don't have experience with it, but I've talked to many people in, in like Wisconsin, you know, saying that that peat will actually burn and it'll burn for days and days and days, if not weeks almost impossible to to get the fire out so i've said many times if you can't burn switchgrass i wouldn't plant it so that that's a you've just described a situation where you can't burn it you also describe how you can't mow it without getting a tractor stuck that sounds like a fantastic 
um, opportunity or situation where the red osier dogwood is, is your best option. Um, I, I think that a lot of times, here, here's a, a, a big thing about information on the internet is, is we got to recognize that what we, maybe is bad information for a big region of the country is actually fantastic information for another region of the country. And we, we got to like pick and choose the information that we take from the internet because it may, it may have its, its application in the right situation. But I think there's a lot of, of information that uh, really is bad information everywhere, but there, there's other information that's very sporadic. You know, it's good here, good information for this region, bad information if you take it elsewhere. And I think, I wish I knew what was being promoted about the red osier dogwood to have everybody talking about it and see all these posts about it. Um, because then I could comment, you know, a whole lot more, but I'm seeing a lot of information about red osier dogwoods and they absolutely do have a place And the situation you described is a perfect example of where they would have a place. Yeah. I'm sure somebody can comment down below if they're watching on YouTube and tell you, where it's all coming from. Buyafarm.com is your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. Now, here is Don Higgins with this week's featured property. Well, welcome everyone to the Buyafarm.com segment of the Chasing Giants podcast. I have Don Bailey on the phone. Welcome to the show, Don. You have an awesome property, 70 acres in Marion County that we want to talk about tonight. Yes. Uh, thanks for the invitation tonight, Terry. Uh, yeah, we have 70 acres uh, in Marion County, uh, just north of Alma, Illinois. Uh, it's, I'm a salesman, Terry, but it, it truly does. It has it all. Um, 70 acres, there's 32 acres of open land. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mainly been used for pasture, uh, or not for pasture, but for hay. It's got mm-hmm. the amazing, amazingly good fescue and clover stand on it. Uh, I was talking to the neighbor today that had lived there next to him for 45 years. I said the gentleman that owned it for the last 50 years didn't allow any honey. Wow. Uh, which, which is amazing. Uh, it has several fingers of brush, several fence rows. Uh, it has a nice pond. Uh, has a established uh, orchard of various trees. Uh, garden spot is ready. And another interesting thing about it, Terry, it has a barn built in 1930s, mm-hmm. uh, still straight and structurally sound. Wow. Uh, a lot of them at that age get, weren't built properly or whatever, right. or didn't good foundation, and they kind of went by the way. Right. But uh, has a home on it, a small home, 1,200 square feet. Uh, excellent structure has a, a metal roof and new windows, but the uh, home is dated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gentleman lived there for years and years, and uh, a lot of the last few years he lived by himself. So it's 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 extremely dated, but right. it is a solid home. Right. Uh, two two car detached garage, nice machine shed, uh, several other outbuildings. Uh, and the thing, the thing for hunters is it, it's basically move in ready. I mean, right. it's the home's functional. Uh, the land supposedly hasn't been hunted for 50 years 
and uh, I can only imagine the the game there, the deer yeah. and turkey. Yeah, that gets everybody's attention when nothing is allowed to be hunted on because that's just, you know, Don and I preach all the time, the lack of intrusion is what gets those mature giant bucks ready to stay somewhere, and that's probably just a safe haven since nobody's been in there hunting. The other thing I like about that is even though the house is dated, it would be perfect for a group of guys to, you know, have it as a hunt camp and do it kind of fix up and, you know, improve stuff as they go but be able to move in and hunt in it this season, um, you know, storage sheds for side-by-sides, equipment. Um, it just sounds like a great opportunity for an outdoorsman or a family that wanted to remodel a home and have a little bit of acreage. Yes, and it, uh, they, like I said, it, the home is dated, but you can tell by looking at the whole thing that the guy was meticulously meticulous about caring for stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. everything, is in, everything is in top-notch shape. It's got some age on it, but uh, sure. he's got a vineyard planted. Uh, wow. Had, had it irrigated from the pond. Uh, a rather large area of grapevines. Hmm. Has like an acre of garden that he planted every year. It's plowed and ready. Uh, another thing that was strange about it, um, there's at least 25 trees, huge trees uh, that were planted over the years next to the house within 50 yards of the house mm-hmm. which is which is you just don't see anymore right nice shade and, and windbreak too so yeah. all right well yeah. this unlike some of the previous times we've had you on this is not an auction this is a true listing that we can find on biofarm.com's website for the people watching on youtube you're seeing pictures of it right now but when you go to biofarm.com search the county marion county and it's 70-acre listing. Um, why don't you, uh, Don, go ahead and give your contact info. That way, if anybody has any questions, um, you know, it's not a set date for an auction, so this thing could go any time. So if you're interested in learning more, they need to reach out to you immediately. Okay, it's Don Bailey. My direct phone line number is 618-919-1031. Or my email is dbailey at biofarm.com. Great. Can't wait to uh, have you on in the future with other listings or auctions or uh, other properties. But as always, we want to thank you for supporting the podcast. And go check out buyafarm.com on the website or on their social media page. Thanks, Don. We appreciate you, buddy. Thank you. Extremely proud to be working with you boys. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Okay, this one comes from Scott Thomas from Hartford, Wisconsin. He says, hi, Don and Terry. I came upon your podcast about a year ago and have found your info and topics helpful and interesting. As a new property owner within the last few years, the wealth of info available on the internet for deer habitat management can be a bit overwhelming, sifting through what is practical or just a BS sales pitch. Thanks for the no BS info. Don, on a recent podcast, you mentioned you were going to be doing an annual burn on one or more of your switchgrass plots. I understand the reasoning for the burn as to promote the health of the switchgrass plot. Being you are a big proponent of being non-intrusive on your property, I see the burn as being very intrusive. Secondly, it displaces any deer using the switchgrass for cover or bedding after the burn and will not be viable cover bedding area for what I am guessing till late summer. Can you enlighten as to why this is not being intrusive or disruptive to one's property? especially if you have a known target buck, in your case, babe, 
but you may or may not know if it inhabits your property year round. Thanks, Scott. Well, Scott, uh, one of the, the ways to keep big mature deer on your property is through good habitat and uh, burning is required for switchgrass. Um, in any given spring, I am only burning about one third of my switchgrass. Two thirds of it gets gets left, so I'm burning on a three year rotation. And uh, so any particular field gets burned once every three years. That is not. I, I get a hundred percent what you're saying, but you got to look at the time we're doing it. These burns are taking place in late March, about the time you know winter's breaking and things are just starting to green up. Uh, the pressure that you're putting on your property at that time of the year is not a, a, a near as big a deal as it would be later in the year. So, uh, you know, I've I burned a, a plot of switchgrass this spring. Here we are in May. That switchgrass is already over a foot tall. Come, coming back from absolutely nothing in March. Here in May, it's already well over a foot tall, maybe 18 inches tall. I don't know. I haven't been back there in a few days, but uh, so it comes back really quickly. And, and the human intrusion that, that I put on those uh, patches of switchgrass when I burn them is you got to weigh the, the pros and the cons. The benefits far outweigh the cons because if I didn't burn it, those switchgrass patches would be overtaken with weeds and such, and the, the quality of the cover would go downhill uh, over the years. So I'm maintaining quality habitat through those fires or those burns. And that, that combined with the time of the year I'm doing it far outweigh any negatives from human intrusion. It's not like I'm burning the entire property. In, in all truthfulness, I'm probably burning, you know, less than five percent of my property when, when that fire happens so it, it's a it's a minor thing really and as you uh as you get the new project of the new 40 in, on and board you're going to have even more bedding there um that will be still on a rotation to burn but um i have a question for you i've never i've never asked you this so um you've said on the podcast and in seminars before that you know, really you need to, at least around five acres of switch to make it as good as you need it to be. If you had just one, like your, your property has a creek that goes through it. So one switch grass field is on the east side and two are on the left. Those two are separated by a big drainage ditch and a food plot. So that's three different basically zones. If you had just one field that you wanted to put in switch grass, and it was say five acres, would you still put a fire break in it to where you could burn half of it each year? Or would you just trust if you had other bedding, you um, TSI or other, other places for the deer to stay? Um, I know every situation is a little bit different, but would you try to divide that up so you could burn it in different times? It would depend on the size of the patch. I mean, if it was you know, if it was 15 acres, yeah, I would probably try to divide it into three, five acre tracks. If it was smaller than that, say if it was 10 acres, I might have two five acre tracks and, you know, burn one a, a year and maybe every third year, not burn any, still be on that every third year rotation. Um, it, it's again, it's going to be very 
it's going to vary based on the exact size of the plot and the, the layout of, of the plot and how much other situation. cover you have on the property. Yep. Right. A lot of variables come into play. But it sounded like the tone of the question that the listener submitted in, it's he, he was assuming that you were burning all of the switchgrass every um, during the year, and that's not what you're doing. So I hope that helps. Mm-hmm. It's in three different zones. He burns one zone every three years. So we'll go on to the next one. Okay, this one comes from R. Hazlitt from Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania. It says, Don and Terry, I recently was watching an excerpt on a food plot practice with corn, a vining legume such as lab lab or peas, and soybeans, where corn was planted in two rows with two rows of the soybean vining legume mixture beside it. This pattern carried throughout the field. Why has this practice not been practiced more in the food plot world? Well, actually, I think it has been practiced quite a bit in the food plot world. It's not one that I am a big fan of, but I know Terry and our friend Patrick Simpson do this to some degree. And and one of the reasons I picked this question was I think Terry and I are going to give you two opposing views of it. I personally, uh, I would just prefer to have each of my my crops, if you will, separated. Um for a variety of reasons. One of those is being the herbicides that I use. Um, You know, it's hard to find a good residual herbicide that works on both corn and soybeans. And with with, uh, resistant weeds like mare's tail and water hemp being an issue on my farm, I wanna use the best chemical I I can on both my corn and my soybeans. So that requires two different chemicals. That's a huge reason, probably the number one reason I don't do it. Uh, the other thing is I think you get a better yield from both the corn and the soybeans if they're they're grown separately. So that would be number two for me. Um, you know, number three would be that I prefer your corn has to be grown on in rows to, to get a good crop. 30 inch rows, 36 inch rows, whatever. The soybeans, I prefer to drill mine. I prefer them on, you know, I've got a... Uh, a drill that has uh, I got two drills my Genesis and then uh, I, I got an old tie drill one of those is on eight inch rows the other's on seven and a half I like those tight rows on my soybeans because they they canopy a whole lot quicker which cuts down on weed competition so uh, you know the different row spacing with corn versus soybeans is another reason I'm not a fan of it um, I do think it it probably has its place. I, I think you could make a good good plot by mixing them, but uh, I have to be honest, I have no experience with it. So I'm going to turn it over to Terry, who does have experience with it. Well, my preferred method is to have them right beside each other. Um, I've talked about it on the podcast before. I I really strategically lay out the design of a food plot especially when it's not a long narrow strip if i had my if i had my way it'd be a long narrow strip where the deer would feed through it but in in our area of the country we have basically big ridges and then it falls off to the side so we don't have that option you basically plant where it's flat Um, i know some people you plant in the bottoms we plant on the top and uh so what I'll do is I'll put specific angles in of corn and then beans or beans and then clover or beans and alfalfa just to create the height variation where they travel right along. You can funnel deer that way. 
what I think this question is going towards is they mentioned like two rows of corn and two rows of a short product and two rows of corn. We don't do that. In some cases where we want to produce a ton of uh, just a lot of tonnage, we will put in soybeans and corn in the same plot. So we can't use like NutriCrave corn, for example, because of the herbicide application. We'll have to use like a Roundup Ready corn. And what we do is we either drill in or broadcast in our beans, drag them in, cult to pack them, and then we'll run the corn planter over. Um, it just produces a lot of uh, tonnage in that small square foot area. So if we have like a back inside corner that usually gets over browsed, if we just put beans in it, um, it seems like they last a whole lot longer. Um, the corn definitely grows taller. So like we did a test one year on Patrick's farm where we ran the broadcast cedar down and then planted corn and you could pick the row and the corn with the beans in it was a foot and a half to two foot taller than the than the corn that didn't have the beans in it. And I think that as they're both growing in the earlier stages, they're competing for height and it probably just accelerates it faster. Now, to say that one of them has a better yield on the number of kernels or the, the amount of corn that's grown, I don't know that. I think you probably do lose probably about 20 to 30% pod production on your beans that way. Um, you know, if you have just a standard field of beans, they're going to bush out, get all that sunlight, all those blooms. You don't get that in the middle of the corn. So I think your bean production does go down. So what you have to look at is, do I have just a corn field or do I have corn with some pods in it? And that's what we do. We don't do it all the time. It's only on certain areas. Like uh, I have um, one of the fields I laid out today. It's going to be two and a half acres of Gen 2 beans, but it's right next to the road. So I'm going to put 10 rows of Roundup Ready corn out by the road with the beans inside of it just so somebody can't see back in it. So in that case, I'm putting beans and corn together. It's still a lot of food, but it, it's giving me more privacy too. So uh, mm -hmm. I don't think that's what the question was about. I think that they were asking more alternating rows, but I don't have an experience with that. We When we do mix them, we, we broadcast or drill it and then plant the corn over it. So... Mm -hmm. It, we don't we don't broadcast our corn. I don't want people thinking that you're broadcasting corn. You still have to get your beans in and then, but your herbicide has to be a common uh, platform between your beans and your corn. Um, it, it makes it a little bit more complicated, but in some cases, I like using it. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things where you know every or most methods have their their application. Um, where they're useful. I, it's just one that you know, I'm not crazy about for the reasons I listed, but I'm sure it could work too. Yeah. If done right. All right. We'll go to the next one. Patrick's the Patrick's the expert in it. He does it every year. Well, hey everyone. I have Kevin Miller on the line with us. And a couple weeks ago, I teed up a special uh, charity event that Kevin and his friends are putting on down in Western Kentucky uh, to support some missionaries in uh, the Haiti. I believe it's Haiti, isn't it, Kevin? 
Yeah, that's right. So I got Kevin on the line tonight to talk a little bit about the mission itself, where the money goes, and let's start with that, and then we'll talk a little bit about the auction and uh, tell everybody uh, how they can participate if they want to. Yeah, so good evening, everyone. I'm uh, glad to be on here with you all this evening. I uh, just want to thank Terry for this opportunity uh, to share and appreciate him, appreciate Don, the uh, Chasing Giants family for their support of what we're doing here and just wanted to give a little bit of an explanation of kind of what kind of what Terry explained um, a couple weeks ago on, on this consulting visit that he's donating and just want to yeah start in by saying we greatly appreciate that but well you're welcome but let's give, let's yeah I don't want to interrupt you real quick but let's let's dive in Tell us a little bit about where the money goes. It's, the money is, is pulled together from a lot of different areas. I think there's different states, but, but the money is pulled together, and all of it goes to Haiti to help dish, different missionaries, right? That's right, yeah. So there's basically 18 different missions that we're supporting uh, with this year's auction, and, and prior years it, it kind of bounced between like 17 and 18 different missions. And, and these missions, they're various uh, organizations. I mean, there's there's – things like technical schools there's uh literature distribution there's right. there's all kinds of different different ways that these missions are right. uh so you know helping out the people in haiti right. so this money is basically going to support these missions it's, it's yep. not you know directly funneling into haiti it's basically supporting missions that are based in the state largely right. so well, Haiti's, uh, Haiti's near and dear to my family. My wife and my oldest daughter have been on multiple trips to Haiti. And for the people who follow the country of Haiti, it's in complete turmoil right now. Um, it's, it's really sad. Um, it's, you know, obviously a third world country, but the political nature is, is just completely off its rails right now. And it's so cool to see um, groups of people that get together and try to raise money and not only just give missionary work, but also try to educate, um, empower and create jobs down there. Now this, this auction that you guys are having is coming up pretty soon. So talk a little bit about that. Some of the stuff that might be in it because we have listeners that might want to come to the auction or they might want to contact you and figure out if there's ways they can participate remote. Yeah, so yeah, this auction will be held at the Christian County Event Center, and that's in, in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, uh, Friday evening, uh, May the 19th, and Saturday, uh, May the 20th. And kind of a little bit of the agenda, uh, 4 o'clock we start, and there's like a supper, catfish dinner, um, uh, quite a bit of different food going on there. And then we have the, a live auction that evening selling quite a bit of different things, some uh, fairly high-quality items. we got several 360 blinds. There's Amish-made furniture. There's uh, e-bikes. There's um, garden tools, um, brand-new power tools, just yep. you name it. There's big so many items some there. Stuff so, and some big-ticket yeah. stuff, too. So that's that's a little bit what, what we're doing. Uh, Saturday, it starts at like 6 o'clock, uh, 6 o'clock in the morning with like a, a breakfast, and then we start at eight o'clock with the auction and this auction will probably go most of the day. There's a silent auction board. There's a live auction board or a, excuse me, several live auction rings going and uh, generating, generating this income. So, 
important, okay? So uh, the Higgins Outdoors Group and the Chasing Giants podcast, um, we wanted to support you. So since I'm the local guy, we're donating a free land consulting visit to to be auctioned off. Um, first talk a little bit about that and how that's going to work because there's going to be a couple little caveats where uh, people can work through you and still bid on this. But before you do that, I want to up the ante a little bit if that's okay. Am I allowed mm-hmm. to do that? Yeah. All right, so the winner of the package for the land consulting for Higgins Outdoors, as you know, when I come and do this, this is a Don Higgins plan. I'm more of the site evaluator and put together the preliminary proposal and then go over it with Don. But Don and I are also going to throw in a little bit more. Um, The winner is also going to get a full suit of Osseo camo mid-season Sherpa that we were going to work with our primary sponsor, Osseo Gear, to provide. And then we're also going to do a package from Real World Wildlife Products to help you uh, with your food plot program for that plan that we put together. So we're going to up the ante. It's not just going to be me coming and doing a consulting visit, but we're also going to suit you up with camo and provide you a package for your real-world product uh, that goes along with that plan. How's that sound? Like, wow. I'm like speechless. All right. <laughs> yeah, so, it's the first time I've heard this, and yeah, so I, I'm very, I figured, very grateful. I yeah. figured I would drop that bomb on you live on air. So <laughs> for everybody listening – Go over the dates. That's real important because they need to contact you before certain dates and then tell them how they can participate and how, since since my part's not going to be technically in the live auction, you got to do a silent bid first. Talk about that process so everybody knows uh, because we're running out of time. This is coming up really soon. Yeah, so we, uh, we as a board uh, came together and we kind of decided the best probably the best way since we don't really have a platform to bid on uh, the best way that we could, we could really see that to, to, to allow the podcast listeners to bid on this was, uh, and, and also be part of the, uh, the, the live event or the silent auction event on the day of sale is for the, the podcast listeners to provide us with a silent bid. And uh, that can be via uh, texting uh, my cell phone um you can you can drop something in the mail. I can provide that address. Time's running a little shorter for that, but and and that deadline would be um, Friday, May the nineteenth at twelve noon uh, Central Time, and then we'll be taking that bid, that that top silent bid, uh, sealed bid, and and putting it on the silent auction board on sale day. So if you want to uh, top that bid, you know probably going to need to be there on sale day. So. But, um, yeah, just, uh, just appreciate, yeah, appreciate all that you threw in there, Terry, on, on that. It's just, uh, tremendous. Yep. So if you want, if you want to, to bid on the free Higgins plan, a full gear of mid-season Sherpa Osseo gear camo and a real world package to go along with your consulting visit, Kevin's going to give you his phone number and you need to call him. Um, the way our post office works, I wouldn't trust the mail right now. So um, I recommend you call or text to get your silent bid in, and then that'll go on. And then maybe the week after, um, for all the podcast listeners, I'm assuming you're all going to contact the winner, but we'll also announce who won it. Um, that way everybody knows kind of the who the winner was, but I'm sure you guys are going to contact the winner directly uh, that afternoon, right? Yes. So yeah, we'll definitely contact the winner. And, um, also a little bit, I guess you had mentioned that this, this consulting visit is for this coming winter. 
and uh, and the other uh, clause for this is is uh, four hours from from Terry's uh, home, and that that would be like Dry Ridge, Kentucky. So if yeah. you put in in your in your Google Maps or whatever, uh, essentially you know try to be within four hours. If I, I guess if you're a touch over or something, just give you know yeah. give Terry we'll a call. Work with that's kind of so where is, we're at. Yeah. So this is going to basically be anywhere in Kentucky, pretty much anywhere. Nashville, Knoxville, over to Bristol, any Indiana, most of Illinois, southern Michigan, um, anywhere in Ohio, and even parts of western Pennsylvania, West Virginia. So uh, four hours from central Kentucky is a big, big area. And if there's something happens that you're too far away, I'll still make it right with you, and we'll do something, whether it's through one of our other consultants or uh, maybe some other prizes or something. But if you're in that four-hour area and you want to bid on it, um, we'll make it happen. Yeah, sounds great. Um, so, yeah, my information, uh, if, if you want to just reach out to me, cell phone number is 270-893-8340. Four zero again. That's two seven zero eight nine three eight three four zero, and you can just reach out to me uh, if you got any questions, um, or if you just want to send me a text. Preferably, once you actually send the bid, uh, I want it by a text. That way, we have record of it um, along with your address. That way, there's no mistakes. And then, uh, yeah, we'll get you. We'll get you in. So right. I greatly appreciate that. Well, for those who didn't know and didn't hear the previous podcast where I talked about Kevin, Kevin is a consulting client of the Higgins family, and also you've attended the master class, so you've seen firsthand kind of what we're about and still wanted to do this, and we were more than happy to pitch in and help. Um, it's, it's things like this that connect our listeners who are trying to use their passion in their local community to make big things happen in the in the kingdom of God. And we just can't thank you guys enough for all of that group down there around uh, Guthrie and Russellville and Bowling Green and Hopkinsville. So many podcast listeners down there. We thank you guys for your support. But most importantly, thank you guys for uh, trying to do good in the world today and share the love of Jesus. That's what means the most to us. So we appreciate you coming on Kevin and uh, reach out to him. If you want to bid on this thing, we look forward to seeing how much money we can raise. Okay. Appreciate it, Terry. We just, I just want to add, we just want to give God all the glory and, and honor in this. And, and uh, yeah, if you want, if each one could just remember this event in prayer as well, uh, that would, that would be greatly appreciated. So yeah, greatly appreciate y'all, uh, Terry and Don and, and the rest of the Chasing Giants family. You're welcome. Well, stay tuned for our next listener-submitted question on this week's episode. All right. Uh, next question comes from Caleb Vandermail from Hudsonville, Michigan. He says, Don and Terry, my question is for both of you since I haven't heard either of you mention this in the podcast. How much is too much regarding talking during the off-season while doing habit, habitat or tree stand work? For example... While hanging stands, are you whispering or using sign language? Do you think it puts intrusion on the deer at, at your farms? My dad and I always seem to differ on what tone of voice we should be using during the off season. And I'd love for you to set the record straight. Thanks for all you do for us Christians in the outdoor industry. God bless. Well, Caleb, I, I don't know which you or your dad, which side each of you took. So I'm, I'm going to make one of you happy and one of you maybe not so happy, but uh, I'm going to give you a straight answer either way. I, I think that 
when you're doing habitat projects, when you're hanging stands, now if you're hanging a stand in season, that would be totally different than like hanging a stand this time of the year, getting it ready for next fall. But when you're doing, when you're on your property doing this various habitat projects, whether it be working food plots, hanging your stands out of season, whatever, I think you want to make noise. I, I think you want those deer to know that you're there and uh, give them a chance to decide what they're going to do. Are they going to um, vacate the area? Are they going to just lay tight? Um, you, you give them a chance to make a decision when they hear you coming. What you don't want to do is slip right up on them. And, you know, it really, I think of a couple of, of real life examples, and one of them just happened today. Uh, my son-in-law, Corey, was here with me and, and my grandsons, all four of us were in the, the side by side. And I was showing him some work that we'd been doing on the, the new property, the new 40 that, that joins the farm. And we went uh, and we drove the, the side by side and seen where I'd hung a new stand. And uh, folks who watch the uh, Whitetail Master Academy will will recognize the big oak tree that I've talked about several times this spring as I've done projects around that big oak. But Corey, and I, we drove right there to where that big oak was on the side beside any deer in the area could obviously hear us coming on that machine. We had the windows down. We was talking, not trying to be quiet at all. Well, then we, we drove away from there and we, we, we circled clear around the section and we came in from a different direction due to the crops being in and everything to circle around to the other side of that woods, we had to do that. Well, so we come around to the other side and when we did, we were, we jumped a bunch of deer and those deer that we jumped were within 50 yards of that big oak tree. But where they were bedded at, they were like behind a bunch of brush and stuff where we couldn't see them, they couldn't see us, but they could absolutely definitely hear us. Well, those deer laid there, and a few minutes later, when we had circled around on the other side where they could clearly see us and hear us, well, then they busted out of there, and yet those deer had laid there tight that whole time. Well, another example is, uh, you may recall the story of my first 200-inch deer, the 214 I shot back in 2004. Um, the, the, I seen him for the first time on the November 6th and then on November, and I only had one stand on that property at that time. Well, on November 7th, the wind changed and I wanted to get another stand up. So in midday, November 7th, right there at the peak of the rut, I come in with a friend of mine in a pickup truck, windows down, radio cranked as loud as it could possibly go, pull right up to the tree I wanted to work on we get out, we hang the stand, cut a couple of shooting lanes. And, and the whole time we're doing that, I left the truck running. I left that radio blaring the whole time we was doing that. Didn't even attempt to be quiet. Got back in the truck, drove away. I came back that very afternoon for an evening hunt. And I seen the 214 inch buck 20 yards from that stand we just hung. Now he was in really thick brush and, and I was not able to get a shot because of the thick brush he was in. But sometimes you're better off to announce your presence instead of spooking a deer real close in his bed let him hear you coming and let him have a make a choice is he going to lay tight or is he going to sneak away and, and when you do that and the deer 
survives when he, he, he gets away from you doing whatever it is he did laying tight or running. Um, that makes him feel safe there. He, he feels that he avoided danger as he was there at that bed. He, he heard the danger coming. He was able to avoid that danger and it makes him feel safe and he will continue to use that bed. Now, I, I believe if I would have snuck in and tried to, to uh, just walk in quietly and hang that stand. This was a very small property, by the way. I think my odds of busting that deer out that day would have been very, very great, and I would have never got a chance to kill him. I, I am a big fan of announcing your presence when you're doing various projects, all except when you're going to hunt. When you're going to hunt, you want to be as quiet and as sneaky as possible to get in your stand you don't want to alert that deer that there's a person on the property because a mature buck more than likely is just going to lay in his bed till it's dark. So when it comes to hunting, you want to be as sneaky as you can and quiet as you can, but other times announce your, your presence, let that deer have a chance to, to slip away from you and it's not near as much pressure on him. All right. I don't have people with me, so I don't have anybody to talk to usually. So that's my answer. <laughs> well, today I hardly do either. All right, last question. Uh, next question comes. This one comes from Daniel Dipple from Plymouth, Wisconsin. He says, hey, Don, on a previous podcast, you said clover was good to plant around your fruit trees. What are your thoughts on planting alfalfa around fruit trees? You prefer one over the other and why, or are there other options? Thank you. Well, Daniel, without a doubt, clover is the better option. And here's why that, that alfalfa has a really, really deep root. I, I ran a trencher one time through an alfalfa field for a drain tile and, and we was trenching down probably five feet and the, the roots of that alfalfa was at least five foot deep that I, that I could see as we trenched through that field. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're not, not more like six to eight foot deep. That's why alfalfa will stay green even during a drought, because it's got a really deep tap root that'll be several feet down. And that alfalfa with that deep root is, is going to compete with your fruit tree trying to establish its roots. I mean, just as you can only have so many branches on a tree, when those tree branches from competing trees start touching each other, they stop growing. They don't just continue to grow into each other. And it's the same way with the roots. You want that, that fruit tree to be able to establish a good root system without competing with other roots down in that same zone. Clover is a much shallower rooted plant than alfalfa. And both are, are legumes, so both are putting some nitrogen in the soil, but the clover is a much better fit for this application. And there is no way I would want to mow, rake, and bale alfalfa around fruit trees. <laughs> it, yeah. It's bad. It's bad enough mowing it, but man, you got alfalfa is different. You got to mow it. You got to rake it. You got to get it off. It's not like you can just mow it and leave it lay. And trying to do that in and around fruit trees, I ain't having it. Well, you bring up a, another very good point, Terry, of, of why clover is better. You can keep an, a clover stand going forever by just adding more seed each each spring, do some frost seeding and add a little more seed and fill in the little bare areas in your clover stand. With alfalfa, you cannot do that. Uh, a, a mature alfalfa plant 
gives off a toxin and that toxin prevents new alfalfa seed from growing. So you go out and you make a planting of alfalfa, whatever you end up with is what you're stuck with until you terminate that crop. If a farmer plants a crop of alfalfa, he, he typically is gonna get about five years out of a good stand. And over time, he's gonna lose plants, a few plants each year in that stand until he's got a thin stand and it's time to, to terminate that. And when he does, he has to rotate another crop in there for a season before he can come back with alfalfa. With clover, you can keep a clover stand going for who knows how many years, many, many, many years, more than a decade easily by just continually adding new seed to that stand and controlling the weeds and any grasses that might come in there. Yep. So, yeah. Um, I'd prefer clover, but I guess I guess you could make it work with the right layout, but be a whole lot tougher. So, all right, yeah. well that's that's the end of the questions for the day. Um, we got Mother's Day tomorrow, and then what do you got planned this upcoming week? Well, I've got one plot left to plant, which would be my grain sorghum plot, and then I will be done. Um, you know, I'm taking the summer off this year. I'm not doing a, a seminar or nothing. Uh, I got a new grandbaby coming in September that I've, I've mentioned a time or two. But uh, my grandsons are really, uh, they've got a, a new home. My daughter and son-in-law bought 48 acres and and a home. And it's got a, a fairly sizable creek that goes through it. And the, the grandsons, every day they're fishing in the creek. They're even camping in the woods. and and things like that. And uh, I'm going to go and told them, and I, I just told them today that I'm going to go spend some time with them and, and I'm going to sleep in their tent with them in the woods. And um, they're interested in starting to trap. They found some traps, old traps of mine in the barn today. And uh, I'm going to boil them traps with them and get those traps ready to go this fall and, and go spend a couple days uh, there helping them set traps and check traps and and uh, spend time with them so uh, uh those young kids they grow up so fast and i've seen it with my own that you know i want to have an impact on those kids so that when i'm long gone they remember me as fondly as i remember my own grandfather and this summer yeah. i'm going to spend a lot of time with them baseball games and things like that i can tell you the time looking back my dad wasn't a hunter but the time going back listen that i remember the time spent with my grandfather Lester um same type of thing um you know he uh he had a lot of health problems as he got older but he did everything he could to be there with me and show me how to do different things outside and and miss him dearly but I wouldn't trade those times for anything so um hopefully this week uh I doubt I'll I'll try to spend time with the um ladies in the family tomorrow I doubt I'll get anything done after church but um hopefully i got about maybe two evenings of work after work and i'll have all my food plots done i gotta get beans and corn in we got some super ultra secret test plots that we're doing for real world on your farm my farm wes's farm georgia up in the dakotas so i have to get those plots in and marked so that we when we do tissue analysis we know what varieties they are and then I got something that I'm going to do a little bit different this year and uh, and test a product a different way. So 
it's uh it's it's going to take a little bit more time to do layouts and uh change over the planner and stuff but i think i can get it done in about two evenings so it shouldn't be too bad good deal i hope the weather cooperates for you yes sir all right well thanks again everybody remember reach out to kevin miller if you're interested in participating in the haiti mission uh fund and the auctions that are that he talked about earlier go out to buyfarm.com and then also please support all of our other sponsors they uh they are dear friends of ours that we believe in and um, um it means a lot that they support this podcast just like all of you listeners so we appreciate the support from everyone Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Hope you guys all have a blessed week. God bless. Take care. Chasing Giants has been brought to you by Osseo Camo, by a farm real estate company, 360 Hunting Blinds, Victory Chevrolet, Real World Wildlife Products, Matthews Archery, Novix Tree Stands, Gingerich Tree Farm, wildlifefarming.com, Quiet Cat, and Vortex Optics. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week for another episode of Chasing Giants.